Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst, Glenn Kirshner. In this long-form weekend podcast, Glenn recaps the news of the week, beginning with some embarrassing moments at the House Oversight and Accountability hearing as testimony from Twitter employees backfires for Representatives Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Here's Glenn. So friends, welcome to another weekend edition of my new audio podcast, Justice Matters. On the weekends, we pull the chair up to the kitchen table, at least figuratively speaking, maybe literally speaking. And we talk about two things. We recap the legal stories and the legal developments of the week. And, you know, we try to figure out if those developments move the justice needle. And if so, in what direction? And then after we're done, the legal recap, we take on some topic involving the need for reform the need for reform in our government, in our institutions, in the very nature of public service. We talk about court reform, ethics reform, police reform, and so much more. And friends, we talk about reforms that are actually doable, achievable, not some pie in the sky, you know, theoretical, in your dreams kind of reform, but things that we can actually accomplish if we set our minds to it. Last week, for example, we talked about reforming the oath of office. You know, as federal officers, we all take an oath of office when we enter federal service. I took it when I was an Army JAG back in the 1980s. I took it again when I joined the Department of Justice. And friends, you've probably heard the federal oath of office any number of times. It actually is set by federal law, 5 United States Code, section 3331, for those of you scoring at home. And it talks about how, you know, we solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and so on. And as we discussed last week, I propose adding 22 words to that oath. And those 22 words are... I will report promptly all instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. And that, hopefully, will begin to change the culture of ethics in government. And slight update from last week, I've had the opportunity to talk to some of the folks in the Legislative Affairs office of some of my elected representatives, and uh, this is a project that we will be working on until it comes to fruition. And if you're interested in learning more, please consider going back and listening to last week's episode, the weekend edition of Justice Matters, because I set all of this out at greater length. And, you know, this week we're also going to be talking about reform, 
reform in a certain aspect of our government. And this week's discussion about reform couldn't be more timely, in my opinion, because we just had special counsel Jack Smith subpoena a former vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. And we're going to be talking today about one aspect of the need to reform our courts. And we can put a pin in it for right now. We're going to hit the legal recap first, but I think you'll see how the fact that Mike Pence now has a grand jury subpoena in his hot little hands to testify about the crimes of Donald Trump, you'll see how that plays into the need to reform one aspect, one little sliver of our court system. And we'll turn to that in a minute, but friends, let's start with a legal recap. And friends, the first legal story of the week that I wanna touch on has to do with the House of Representatives now being in Republican control. And let's face it, control is probably not the right word to use. But as we all know that the committees in the House of Representatives are controlled for better or worse by the Republicans, including characters like Jim Jordan. And so now they're setting hearings, hearings that are really important to the American people to the lives of everyday Americans struggling to make ends meet. And the American people want to know more about things like Hunter Biden's laptop, because that's how you improve the lives of the American people, by holding hearings about Twitter and whether Twitter temporarily suppressed information about Hunter Biden's laptop. And what we saw unfold this week in some of the first Republican-controlled congressional committee hearings, we saw the Republicans implode. Guys like Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene were made to look foolish in the very committee hearings they called by the very witnesses they called to testify at those hearings. So for example, Jim Jordan wanted to get to the bottom of Twitter because, you know, his assumption, his supposition, the thought he has in that noggin of his is that Twitter is being controlled by the deep state, being controlled by the, the government. And by gosh, Jim Jordan's going to get to the bottom of it. So Jim Jordan called these former Twitter executives to testify. And he, you know, confronted them. You were being told by the FBI, by the federal government, that you shouldn't run stories about Hunter Biden's laptop. And let's remember what this whole, you know, Twitter Hunter Biden laptop kerfuffle was about. There was a period of time, all of about 24 hours, when Twitter blocked a link to a New York Post article about Hunter Biden's laptop. And according to Jim Jordan, this was all part of a deep state plot, the FBI directing Twitter to block that link. Now, first of all, the witnesses who were testifying at Jim Jordan's hearing said, um, yeah, the reason we did that had nothing to do with the FBI. The FBI didn't ask us to do or refrain from doing anything. We were trying to learn from the lessons of 2016 when Russians were flooding 
the internet flooding the zone, so to speak, with disinformation and propaganda designed to help Donald Trump win by, you know, sort of unlawfully, unethically, improperly accepting Russian assistance, indeed seeking Russian assistance. Hey, Russia, if you're listening, help me win. We tried to learn our lessons, and when we saw this link to a Hunter Biden laptop story, we were trying to do the prudent thing. In hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have blocked it, but we only blocked it for 24 hours. But importantly, Representative Jordan, the FBI had nothing to do with our decision. This was our decision. And as a business, as a company, as a corporation, we're entitled to make these decisions because you know, we're not bound by the First Amendment. And then after the witnesses knocked down Jim Jordan's supposition, they did say, but you know, the federal government has directed us to do or declined to do certain things. Like for example, when the Trump administration demanded that we delete a post by Chrissy Teigen criticizing Donald Trump, frankly, kind of poking a little bit of fun at Donald Trump. And the witness was asked, well, can you please testify explicitly about what was in that Chrissy Teigen post? And the witness said, and I quote, I apologize for the language that Donald Trump is a uh, pussy ass bitch, close quote. And the Trump administration in apparent violation of the First Amendment protection of free speech, directed Twitter to take it down. So, you know what, Representative Jordan, you're right. The federal government has tried to dictate our business practices from time to time and delete information, arguably in violation of the First Amendment, when the government tries to do it. Uh, but it was the Trump administration. It was not, you know, the FBI or the deep state. So let's just say that didn't turn out so good for Jim Jordan. Wasn't exactly what he was going for in a hearing that he called. And then arguably it got a little worse because then they let Marjorie Taylor Greene talk. And she said, Twitter violated my First Amendment rights by you know banning me for a period of time or deleting my posts, et cetera, et cetera, which is really unfortunate. You know, friends, I actually have the good fortune, the honor of teaching criminal justice to undergraduate students at George Washington University. And we talk, not surprisingly, about the Bill of Rights all the time, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. Primarily, we talk about the protections found in the Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, Eighth Amendment, but we do a smattering of First Amendment, Second Amendment. and. You know, when Marjorie Taylor Greene said that Twitter was violating her First Amendment rights, you know, one of the things I asked my students, and I don't talk politics, we don't, you know, talk about what a Republican says or what a Democrat said, but, you know, I said, you know, if somebody claimed that Twitter violated their First Amendment rights by blocking them or deleting a post, does that sound like a solid argument to you? Not surprisingly, all of the hands shot up. And I called on one of the students and they said, well, Professor Kirshner, Twitter's not the government. So Twitter can't violate your First Amendment rights. 
And um, it's nice to know that undergraduate students know better what the First Amendment stands for than members of Congress. You know, when you look at the First Amendment, the first word is Congress. Congress shall make no law respecting, among other things, you know, free speech. So Marjorie Taylor Greene is a member of Congress, for better or worse. The first word in the First Amendment is Congress, the body in which she sits, and yet she has no idea that Twitter isn't Congress, can't violate your First Amendment free speech rights. So I went from the belief that, you know, boy, these Jim Jordan-led um, congressional hearings are going to be an absolute nightmare to kind of feeling like, bring it on, schedule more, because it is making the Republicans look foolish, and it's certainly proving that they have no idea how to govern, how to use the power of the majority that they now have in the House of Representatives. So, you know what? The more hearings, the better. Coming up next, Glenn questions why Donald Trump hasn't been prosecuted for racketeering in violation of New York State RICO laws. This is Justice Matters. Hi, Beowulf here with Justice Matters, and I'm here to remind you about one of the best decisions I've made recently, getting Factor Meals. Eating is so much easier for me with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up today and save. I've done the math and I can tell you Factor is less expensive than takeout. And every meal is dietitian approved, nutritious, and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and start meeting your meal and nutrition goals. Head over to factormeals.com slash glen50 and use code glen50 to get 50% off. That's code glen50 at factormeals.com slash glen50 to get 50% off. Remember, go to factormeals.com slash G-L-E-N-N-5-0 and use code GLEN50 to get 50% off today. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. While investigating the tax fraud crimes of the Trump Organization, New York attorney Mark Pomerantz said Trump should be prosecuted for racketeering, fraud, and other crimes. But New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg said he wanted to put those charges on hold. Here's Glenn. Story number two involves the New York District Attorney's Office, led by District Attorney Alvin Bragg. 
That is the office that was investigating Donald Trump criminally, but ultimately decided not to indict him and instead only indicted the Trump Organization, which was convicted, hands down, of running a 15-year-long criminal scheme to defraud in the first degree. Just this long-term, chronic, rampant tax fraud scheme. And you may remember there was a lead prosecutor on the case named Mark Pomerantz, and this week Mark Pomerantz's book was published, and we learned more about the dispute between Pomerantz and Bragg. Pomerantz said, I've been investigating this case. We have enough evidence to indict Donald Trump. We have enough evidence to convict Donald Trump. By the way, Mark Pomerantz and his team, they were investigating Donald Trump for racketeering because New York has what we call a mini RICO law. And he presented it to Alvin Bragg recommending an indictment and District Attorney Bragg killed the investigation and proceeded to trial only against the Trump Organization. So now that Pomerantz's book is out, there's lots of debate. Who had the better argument? Pomerantz, that Trump should be prosecuted, or Bragg, killing the investigation, saying, nope, we're not going to prosecute him. Well, there is a whole bunch of information that I think informs my conclusion that Pomerantz had the better of the argument. But there's one thing in particular, and I'm going to highlight that, but I don't want to dwell on this whole Alvin Bragg fiasco. And here is what really persuaded me that Pomerantz had the better argument. When D.A. Bragg authorized his prosecutors to bring a criminal case against the Trump Organization, they went to trial. They presented all of the witnesses and all of the evidence. And in closing arguments, the prosecutor argued to the jury after they heard all of the evidence of the crimes committed by the Trump Organization argued expressly, ladies and gentlemen, you saw the evidence, and the evidence in this case proves, among other things, that Donald Trump explicitly authorized or approved the fraud. Now remember, friends, Donald Trump wasn't on trial, but a prosecutor stood up after presenting all the evidence and said the evidence proved Donald Trump committed crimes, which leads to the logical question, then why in the world wasn't he indicted and tried for his crimes right along with his organization that he controlled, the Trump Organization. You know, that is a question to which there is no answer, at least not yet. Now, you'll probably also recall that there's been some reporting that Alvin Bragg has uh, reinvigorated his investigation into just one of Donald Trump's crimes, just one. The $130,000 Stormy Daniels hush money payment, right? Trying to hide from the American voters that deeply damaging information about his affair with Stormy Daniels in advance of the 2016 election. He didn't want the voters to know about this, so he paid off Stormy Daniels to keep her quiet. And Alvin Bragg is now making a big show out of, you know, we are reinvigorating our investigation into the hush money payments. Well, bully for you, Bragg. Seems to me you should be reinvigorating your investigation into Donald Trump's racketeering, all of the crimes that he committed, not just this one little sliver of criminal conduct by Donald Trump. You know, regarding that modest investigation into just that one small sliver of Donald Trump's crimes, 
Pomerantz said, indicting Donald Trump for only that crime, quote, would be a very peculiar and unsatisfying end to this whole saga, close quote. To which I say, hear, hear. Coming up next, does a new subpoena for Mike Pence signal more will be coming from special counsel Jack Smith in his investigation of Donald Trump? This is Justice Matters. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Special counsel Jack Smith has sent out a flurry of subpoenas lately, including one to former Vice President Mike Pence. Could this mean the investigation of Donald Trump might be coming to a head? Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, third and final legal recap story, and it's the biggest story of the week. You know, we tend to throw around the word blockbuster all the time, but this one probably qualifies. It's a really important development because special counsel Jack Smith, who has been investigating the crimes of Donald Trump in connection with both the insurrection and the Mar-a-Lago documents crimes, Jack Smith has subpoenaed to the grand jury former Vice President Mike Pence to testify about Donald Trump's crimes in connection with the insurrection. This is a big development. You know, Jack Smith was appointed special counsel on November 18th, less than three months ago, and friends, he has gone scorched earth. I think it's fair to say he's gone 100 miles an hour in the direction of accountability. He's issued dozens of subpoenas to some pretty high profile former Trump administration officials, and he's been putting everyone in the grand jury, developing their testimony, uncovering the evidence they have of Donald Trump's crimes. Now, I maintain these subpoenas should have been served more than a year ago, right? We shouldn't have had to wait this long, but that is now justice water under the bridge. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm glad that Jack Smith is doing what he's doing, and he has now kind of reached the pinnacle when it comes to witnesses who can incriminate Donald Trump, and that pinnacle, sad to say, is Mike Pence. I don't think anybody would ever refer to Mike Pence as a pinnacle. But it's important to present Mike Pence to the grand jury under oath so he can be grilled about the crimes of Donald Trump because he directly implicates Donald Trump in any number of crimes because we know that Donald Trump waged a relentless pressure campaign against Mike Pence to try to get him to do what? Commit crimes. Why do I say commit crimes? Well, the Electoral Count Act pretty much dictated what Mike Pence could do and had to do when he presided over 
the count of the Electoral College votes. What he couldn't do was throw them out and corruptly declare Donald Trump the winner. But that in substance, you know, that was the end game that Donald Trump was shooting for. And boy, he beat Mike Pence like a rented mule, insisting, do it, do it, do it, just do it. And Mike Pence resisted. Now, Mike Pence is no hero, but at least he didn't join Donald Trump's criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of a presidential election. That's something, you know, when the history books are written, you know, they can say something like, well, at least Mike Pence didn't join Donald Trump's criminal conspiracy. That's something. He resisted Donald Trump's efforts to get him to violate the law, the Electoral Count Act. And Donald Trump also tried to get him to obstruct official proceedings. That is yet another crime of Donald Trump and Mike Pence wouldn't go for it. So yes, Mike Pence has deeply incriminating information and evidence that he will now have to present to the grand jury whether he likes it or not, whether he wants to or not. Okay, friends, so let's take a step back and talk about what does this signal? The fact that special counsel Jack Smith has now subpoenaed the person who is arguably the most important, most directly incriminating witness against Donald Trump. Well, let me talk about how we ordinarily run grand jury investigations in large-scale cases when we're investigating large conspiracies or criminal organizations. We will generally save the most important, most incriminating witnesses for last. Why? Well, we want to start with all the lesser witnesses, the people who might have bits and pieces of incriminating information, the people who might be able to point us in the direction of other witnesses that they've spoken with about these crimes we're investigating, and then we kind of work our way up during the course of our grand jury investigation, and we get the more important witnesses and the more consequential witnesses, and ultimately, at the end of the grand jury investigation, you bring in the most valuable witnesses, the ones with the most directly incriminating information about the target or targets of your grand jury investigation, because it is only then that you can really fully question those most important witnesses once you have a full appreciation of all of the information provided by the lower level witnesses, right? Once you get your arms around the entire story and you've absorbed and assimilated all the information and evidence, then you can use it to question that most important witness, that most critical witness like a Mike Pence. So what does this signal? This signals to me that Jack Smith is sort of nearing the end of his grand jury investigation and he's worked his way up to Mike Pence. And let me tell you, friends, ordinarily, once you get to those most important witnesses and you're finally presenting them to the grand jury, generally the next step is assessing whether you have enough evidence to ask the grand jury to indict folks. And if you do, and I'm quite sure Jack Smith does, then you ask the grand jury to vote out indictments. So it feels like Jack Smith is definitely moving in the direction of accountability in the direction of indictments, and yes, in the direction 
of justice. Coming up next, now that Mike Pence has been subpoenaed, will he choose to ask for executive privilege so he can refuse to testify before the grand jury? This is Justice Matters. Former Vice President Mike Pence has balked at testifying about Donald Trump's crimes in the past before the January 6th committee. And now that he's been subpoenaed to testify by special counsel Jack Smith before a grand jury, he might try to get out of it by invoking executive privilege. And when he loses, will he delay justice by appealing it many times all the way to the Supreme Court? Here's Glenn. And now, friends, that brings us to part two, the topic of reform. Specifically, court reform. Reforming one sliver of the way courts do business or fail to do business. So what does this one sliver of court reform that we're about to discuss have to do with the fact that Mike Pence now has in his hot little hands a grand jury subpoena commanding him to testify about, in a very real sense, against Donald Trump? Well, here's why. Once Mike Pence was served that subpoena, he has a decision to make, right? He, well, he could defy it outright, just not show up, thumb his nose at a lawfully issued grand jury subpoena. He's not going to do that because he would be held in contempt. The judge would send marshals out to arrest him and drag him before the grand jury. He's not going to go that way. You know, he did announce, remember, that when the J6 committee wanted to secure, obtain his testimony, he said, Congress has no right to my testimony you know, full of self-righteousness, which is one of the most un-American things I think I've ever heard a vice president say, because he had information, he had evidence about Donald Trump's crimes to overthrow our democracy, and he hid it, he buried it, he refused to share it with Congress, because Congress had no right to his testimony. Boy, that is a sorry state of affairs. That is a horrific position for a vice president to take. I will deprive from Congress and by extension from the American people the evidence I have of Donald Trump's crimes to try to bring an end to our American experiment. Sad, but that was Mike Pence's position. Well, he can't take that position now because once you receive a grand jury subpoena, that's a court order directing you to appear before the grand jury and testify truthfully. So, if he won't defy the subpoena, what might he do? Well, let's assume that, you know, this plays out in Disneyland where, you know, everything comes up, roses and candy canes. He could walk into the grand jury, raise his right hand, swear to tell the truth, and then testify truthfully and fully and accurately about all the crimes of Donald Trump. You think that's the way Mike Pence is going to play it? Maybe, you know, if he has any self-respect, if he has any lingering concern for the health and viability of our democracy, that's the way he should play it. But now let's come back to reality. What will Mike Pence do? Well, he may try to fight the subpoena in the ways that are available to him to fight the subpoena. What does that look like? Well, he could refuse to testify by invoking executive privilege. Now, let me start by saying that's a losing argument. However, It is lawful for him to assert that argument. And then 
litigate the issue before a judge as to whether executive privilege can protect him, prevent him from having to testify about the crimes of Donald Trump. Now, I'm not going to do a whole tutorial on privileges, executive privileges or attorney-client privilege or other privileges, but ordinarily they will yield to something called the crime fraud exception. At the end of the day, if Mike Pence decides to raise a privilege, you know, trying to continue to hide now from the grand jury evidence of the crimes of Donald Trump, he'll lose that argument in court. And the way it gets litigated is Chief Judge Beryl Howell, the chief judge um, who has oversight, supervisory responsibility over the grand jury in D.C. where Mike Pence has been subpoenaed, she'll litigate the issue. And she will rule, I'm quite sure, no, Vice President Pence, you do not have a viable executive privilege. Get in there and testify. And then what will Mike Pence do? You don't need me to tell you, right, friends? He can appeal it to the D.C. Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. And if he doesn't like their decision, a decision that will first be made by a three-judge panel, he can appeal it to the full appellate court, what we call en banc, full court, and then all of the judges will have to decide it again. And if he doesn't like their decision, he can appeal it to the Supreme Court, right? This brings us to the need for reform. Why do we need to reform this process? Well, how many times have we seen Donald Trump, a nefarious litigant, and those of his ilk weaponize the delay in the court system to run out the clock. How many times did we see Donald Trump do that? Frivolous appeal after frivolous appeal after frivolous appeal. But each appeal means, oh, now we have to set a briefing schedule and the attorneys have to file briefs and then we have to set an argument schedule and then they have to argue in court their respective positions. Then we need a lot of time to make the decision. Then they get to appeal it. Now we have to set a briefing schedule and an argument and on and on and on it goes. You know, we've seen Donald Trump, for example, fight the release of his tax returns up and down the judicial chain, you know, to the Supreme Court, I think not once but twice, and he burned years of, you know, democracy daylight trying to run out the clock. And the courts typically let him do it. They let nefarious litigants get away with it. They let these dirty litigants who aren't really interested in winning cases, they're just interested in building in as much delay as possible, they let them weaponize the system to their advantage. And, you know, we saw Don McGahn do this for years, fighting, you know, an order that he has to testify before Congress. About what? That was about Donald Trump's other crimes. Remember all that obstruction of justice Donald Trump committed? for which he's never been held accountable. Boy, this makes my head explode as a former career prosecutor, but you don't have to be a prosecutor to see just how damaging this is to our democracy. The ability of nefarious litigants, particularly high government officials, to weaponize the delay in the court system and run out the clock. And here comes the reform, friends. Courts don't have to let litigants do this. They have control over the schedule they set for those briefs to be filed, for those arguments to be made, and for decisions to be handed down. The courts have control. 
Let me use an example of how courts can wrestle with problems like this and do better. There are specialized courts that get created all the time. When the judiciary sees a problem, the judiciary has pretty wide latitude to address the problem, to put procedures in place that make the system better, more efficient, more just, more fair, more timely. You know, I practiced in Superior Court in Washington, D.C., as well as Federal Court in Washington, D.C., because as a federal prosecutor with the Department of Justice, but specifically working at the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, we're the only U.S. Attorney's Office that handles all federal prosecutions and all local prosecutions. And so I want to talk about the Superior Court practice in D.C. for just a minute as a run-up to this reform that we're going to talk about. That court, it's a terrific court, there are about 60 or 65 judges, I know many of them, I've tried cases in front of many of them. When they see a problem in the way the system is operating, they actually proactively try to address it. So for example, you know, there were so many drug cases that were coming into court, minor drug offenders, that they decided to create a specialized court. It's called, not surprisingly, drug court. And they deal with drug cases, drug use cases in particular, but also low-level distribution cases in a way that makes more sense to everybody, to the defendant, to the community, to the system. They have drug court. They did that on their own in partnership with the U.S. Attorney's Office, the prosecutors, what's called the Pretrial Services Agency, and the defense bar. And they created drug court. And that makes for a much more efficient way to deal with drug offenders. They saw a mental health problem with so many of the defendants who were landing in the system. And they created mental health court to deal more productively and in a more targeted fashion to help make the system more efficient and to help the defendants at the end of the day, not at the expense of victims or the safety of the community. So they created drug court. They created mental health court. They also created what was called East of the River Court or community court, which is a geographically based docket. A docket is just the cases assigned to one particular judge. And the point is, none of this stuff took an act of Congress or an act of the D.C. City Council. These were problems that the court perceived and they decided to do something about it. It's a very progressive court in all the right ways in my experience. I, I practiced there for decades. And we have a problem in federal court. We have a problem when one branch of government is in a dispute with another branch of government, like when the judiciary subpoenas somebody like Don McGahn, a former White House counsel, who has information and evidence about Donald Trump's crimes of obstructing justice. And Don McGahn tries to you know, do everything he can to keep from having to testify. And the case gets injected into court. You now have two co-equal branches of government bumping heads, right? Butting up against one another. That has to be resolved. And at times, these disputes have to be resolved in the courts. Well, what do you do 
when you have two co-equal branches of government who are trying to do the people's work, presumably, in you know, the Donald Trump era, trying to save our democracy, and that case moves into the courts. Well, a couple of things happen. One, everything slows down or maybe even comes to a grinding halt while we go through the endless exercise of setting a briefing schedule three months down the road, and then a couple, a couple of months later setting an oral argument, and then a few months later maybe you get an appellate court opinion, and then that gets appealed. So all over again you have to go through the briefing schedule and the argument schedule waiting for the appellate court resolution of the case which will be appealed to the Supreme Court. This can take forever, and guys like Donald Trump know it can take forever. That's why they weaponize the delay in the court system. So the courts know this is a problem, and the courts have it within their power to address this problem and make it better. Here's how. I propose that the courts should create a specialized docket, specialized court, if you will, just like in Superior Court, we've got Drug Court, and Mental Health Court, and Community Court, and others. Let's have an inter-branch dispute court, an IBDC. So when you have two branches of government bumping heads like this and that dispute moves into the courts, rather than having it take a year or two or three years to resolve, you do it promptly. The inter-branch dispute court would set the following schedule. Oh, you are subpoenaing an executive branch official to testify about the crimes of a sitting president or a former president, you're trying to make some progress to save our democracy, here's what you're gonna do now that this case has been filed. In two weeks, I'm gonna get your brief. In two more weeks, we're gonna have an oral argument. And then two weeks after that, the appellate court will resolve your case. Six weeks start to finish. You wanna appeal? Then we're gonna put you right back on a two-week, two-week, and two-week schedule and you will have your case resolved by the appellate court within another six weeks. You wanna to go to the Supreme Court, gets a little dicier there, but you see the pattern emerging here. All the court has to do is modify its own internal rules and procedures and timeframes, and it can create an inter-branch dispute court, an IBDC court or docket, to deal promptly and efficiently in a timely manner with disputes between two co-equal branches of government that move into the courts. You know, friends, yes, Donald Trump, guys like Don McGahn and others weaponize the delay in the court system, but it hasn't always been that way, and it doesn't have to be that way. And as an example of how it has been done more efficiently in the past, let's look back to Watergate, when there was a subpoena for Richard Nixon's tapes. Richard Nixon didn't want to give over the tapes. So in April of 1974, that dispute moved into the courts, April. And by July, April, May, June, July, three to four months, that case had made its way all the way through the trial court, the appellate court, the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court unanimously ruled, hey, President Nixon, give over the tapes. There's an example of an earlier version of what I would now call the interbranch dispute court.
court, the IBDC. It has been done in the past, it can be done again, and it just takes a recognition by the judiciary together with their partners, prosecutors, and pretrial service agencies, and defense bars, but the judiciary can take the lead and can set these time frames and deadlines and procedures on their own. It doesn't take an act of Congress. And this is the kind of thing, it's an easy fix that can be put in place. I've talked to judges about it, and it can remedy some of what we see going on, you know, by the Donald Trumps of the world, by the nefarious litigants, by the people who are trying to weaponize every angle of the courts to their own dirty ends. We don't have to let it happen. We can create an interbranch dispute court, an IBDC. Again, this is not some pie-in-the-sky reform that has no hope of ever becoming a reality. This is doable. This is achievable. It just takes the sort of public and political will to do it. And that's where we all come in, friends. That's where we all come in. Because the one thing we can still do is take this, package it up in one paragraph or two paragraphs, and email it to our elected representatives. I know people in red states will say, my elected representatives aren't going to listen to you know, our determination to make a more efficient, more fair, more just government, do it anyway. You know, groundswell, grassroots, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. So hopefully this is something that people will think is worth pursuing, and if you do, package it up. Email it, you know, text it, phone calls to your elected representatives at the local level, town, you know, your state level, your federal level, you know, just get the word out that there are things that can be done on the reform front to move our nation forward. So friends, thank you for joining me at the kitchen table for this extended weekend Justice Matters chat. If you want to know where else you can find me, um, you can go to Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I'm Glenn Kirshner 2. I hope someday to be promoted to Glenn Kirshner 1, but for the time being, I'm Glenn Kirshner 2 on those platforms. You can also find me on YouTube, my YouTube channel, Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. I post a legal analysis video every day. And of course, these audio podcasts are now posting three times a week. The two weekday editions are compilations from my YouTube videos, and then we have this long format weekend chat um, that we'll post each Saturday. And finally, friends, I have a newly launched website. Lots of great people helped me put this together. Uh, you can find that at glennkirshner.com. And as always, friends, please stay safe, please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon. For more on Glenn, go to Glenn Kirshner 2 on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. This is Justice Matters.